Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for being with us this morning. Um, this morning, we are continuing our series on peacemakers. Um, and this morning, we're, our, our sermon title is It's Not My Fault. Um, and, and we're going to look this morning, one of the things, if you want to be a peacemaker, is, is you both have to acknowledge your faults and you have to own your faults and you really, you have to repent from your faults. And so we're going to look at what it really means to repent and what repentance looks like. Um, and then, then we're going to talk about, because if you want to be a peacemaker, you, you can't do that. We talked last week about when there's something in your own eye, you're, you're not going to be able to respond to what's in someone else's eye. And, and, and more than that, if our mission is to be peacemakers for the Lord, if we're, if we're living out his great commission, as we looked at last week, then, then the reality is, is that when something's our fault, we, we've got to own it and we've got to turn from it. And so we're going to look at that today. And to do that, we're going to look at three stories from the book of Samuel. Now, I say Samuel, not First and Second Samuel, because Samuel is one really long story. And the reason we call it First Samuel and Second Samuel is not because it's two books, but because it was so long it took two scrolls. But, but Samuel is one coherent narrative where, where you see from the beginning to the end how God will lift up the humble and, and, and will put down the prideful. And, and it's not about our might. It, it's about our following after him and turning to him because the Lord can save with many or he can save with few. The, the picture of God in the book of Samuel is he is the Lord of hosts. He has the heavenly armies. He does not need us to even stand for him, but he desires for us to. And, and so we're going to look at this today. And my, my hope today is that you'll be, first off, really honest with yourself, because you're going to be one of these three men that we're going to look at. And, and the second thing is, is if, if you're not the right one, I, I hope by the end of today, you, you will be moving towards being the right one, because it's really clear what the difference between them are. So we're going to open up in a moment, but first let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are so good. Um, Lord, we thank you that if we turn to you, if we follow you, if, if our heart is in the right place, that we can exult in you. And, and we thank you that your desire is to lift us up in you. We, we thank you that even though you are the Lord of hosts, you, you have no need for any of us. You are perfect and beyond compare on your own. You invite us to be a part of your story and you desire for us to follow after you. And, and what an honor it is that, that we can be your people. And Lord, we pray today that, that if we are people who follow you half-heartedly or don't really follow you at all, that um, if the kingdom we desire to make great is our own, we pray you would help us to repent of that. We pray you'd help us turn from that. And Lord, we, we know that we are all sinners. But Lord, we pray that in our sin, we would recognize what your son has done and recognize who you are and, and that we would just desire to turn back to you, that, that you would help us to just see clearly just the beautiful picture you have for us. I, I pray you would speak through me, that your spirit would be moving, and I pray you would give us all ears to hear the message. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're in the book of Samuel, and we're going to look at three of the first or three of the four leaders of the people of Israel in Samuel. One was a, king, or was a, a judge by the name of Eli. We're going to look at him first. And then we're going to look at the first two kings of Israel. Um, so this first guy, his name's Eli. Um, and he is a priest in Israel and he is the judge in Israel. He judged Israel for 40 years. And what that meant was before there were kings, there were judges. And he was the judge of Israel. 
And, 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 and Eli was from the line of Aaron. And if you don't know who Aaron is, Aaron's the brother of Moses. When Moses was going to say, let my people go to Pharaoh, at first he told God, hey, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to say that. Um, some people think it's because he had a stutter. I think it's because he was a coward. Um, but, but so God said, here, take Aaron with you. He'll help you out. And so, so Aaron joined in with Moses. And, and through the book of Exodus, there's a point where the Lord tells Aaron that he and his descendants will go in and out of the house of the Lord forever. Um, and, and they'll serve the Lord. And that, that promise he made with them was contingent on them serving the Lord. But, but it's a great honor for them that they get to be involved in the house of the Lord forever on this earth. And so Eli is from that same line as Aaron. And, and so he's a descendant. He's serving in the house of the Lord. At the time, it was a tent. This is before um, Solomon built the temple. But, but, but Eli is the priest and he's the judge of Israel. He's the highest authority in Israel short of God at this time. And, and the first time we meet uh, Eli, um, we don't get a good impression of him. Um, and, in fact, something in the book of Samuel, the first time you read, um, so, or the first time someone speaks and you read it, it, the first time someone speaks in Samuel, it gives you a pretty clear idea of how the author wants you to view them. And, and the first time Eli speaks, he's sitting at the doorpost of the, the tent at the house of God at, at that time. And, and he's sitting there and there's a woman named Hannah. And Hannah is praying to the Lord. She's greatly distressed. She's crying out to the Lord, asking the Lord to give her a son. That son would become Samuel, who the book's named after, but the book was not written by Samuel because he dies halfway through. Okay, glad we got that out of the way. But, but Hannah is praying to the Lord and Eli's sitting in, in the tent, and, and he looks over and he sees her there. And um, Eli thinks she's drunk. And so he, the first thing he says to her, he takes her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Our, our first picture of Eli is not very good. Uh, um, he, he assumes something about her. He doesn't ask her, woman, what's wrong or anything. He doesn't do anything positive. He immediately starts rebuking her. And, and Hannah responds, don't think I'm a worthless woman. A, a worthless person would be a person who shouldn't even be in or near the temple. Don't think I'm a worthless person. I'm, I'm praying to the Lord. And she, she tells Eli that. And, and then Eli responds with, oh, well, never mind then. Go in peace. The Lord will grant you your request. He doesn't ask what the request is, um, which I think is not great either. But, but he just says, okay, never mind. My bad. Um, so that's not a great picture of Eli. Um, the, the only other thing at this point we know about Eli is he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And, and when we go into chapter two, uh, we start to learn about his sons. And they're not called Hophni and Phinehas. They're called Eli's sons because the author wants you to remember these are Eli's children and connects them with Eli. And he says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, now they were under Eli, so they were serving in the temple. And, and we learn in 1 Samuel 2, that the sons of Eli, every day and throughout the, the week and the months, and there'd be people who would come in and offer sacrifices to the Lord. And for the priests, the way that they ate is they ate off of the offerings that people offered up to the Lord. And the Lord allotted a portion of each sacrifice. But Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, his sons did not settle for just what the Lord gave them. And so what they would do is people would come in to offer sacrifices. And we learn in the book of Leviticus that during the sacrifices, the fat and the choice part of the meat would go to the Lord, and then the priests would be given other parts of the meat. But his sons and their servants would go in and they would strong arm the people of Israel and say, give me that meat before the fat had cooked. And the people of Israel would say, no, 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 no. Let, wait until the Lord's part is done. And then the, the sons and their servants would threaten them and say, no, 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 give it to me now. 
And so they were literally stealing the sacrifices of the Lord, taking what was his and, and eating it. And, and it's, it's hard for us to imagine in our modern times um, how heinous this was, how wicked this was. But um, especially yesterday, I smoked a brisket. And so I, I got to eat a beautiful fatty cut of meat. But for the Israelites, that portion of meat would have been just for the Lord. And so the sons of Eli are stealing it. And then we learn more about them a little bit further on in Samuel. You see, um, Eli hears reports about his sons, not just about that, but he also hears that, that they've been sleeping with women who serve as attendants in the tent. This is the tabernacle, the tent of the Lord, the tent of meeting. They're, they're, they're sleeping with women who are serving there. And so Eli rebukes them for that. He doesn't rebuke them for the offering stuff, but he rebukes them for what they're doing with women. And, and he tells them, you need to stop sinning like this. And, and so, so Eli kind of judges them and kind of says, stop it. He rebukes them. But, but it, it seems kind of half-hearted because they just stay in their position. He doesn't kick them out of the temple he doesn't do, or the tabernacle. He doesn't do anything like that. He just tells them, stop it. And then they don't. And, and what comes of this? is that the Lord sends a man of God, a prophet, to deliver a message to Eli. Not his sons, Eli, because Eli is the judge of Israel, the priest in charge of the tabernacle, and he's allowing this to happen. And, and the Lord sends this man of God, and this man of God says to Eli, thus says the Lord, this is in 2 Samuel 2, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father Aaron when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people? The, the man of God is saying, you are what I gave to Aaron and his descendants. You are squandering. You are being so wicked. You're honoring your sons over the Lord that you're here to serve. And, and he goes on to say, because of that, you've been fattening yourselves up off the sacrifices to the Lord, the offerings to the Lord. Because of that, your line is going to be cut off from serving in my house. And on top of that, those in your line that remain will be begging for crumbs. And, and he delivers this whole message to Eli. And at the end of this, you hope that you're going to see Eli say something like, I need to repent. I need to do something. But right away, we jump to just the next story. Eli doesn't say anything in response. And, and the next story is the story of Samuel, when the Lord first calls Samuel. And the Lord calls Samuel, and, and Samuel, the Lord says to Samuel, Samuel, while Samuel's trying to sleep, and he keeps Samuel thinks it's Eli, and so he keeps running back to Eli and saying, here I am, here I am. And eventually Eli says, I think the Lord is trying to give you a message. So then when the Lord calls out, Eli says, here I am, Lord. And then the Lord gives Samuel this message to deliver to Eli. Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. What that means is everyone's going to know about this and they're going to be shocked by it. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. They were stealing the sacrifices, the offerings, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. 
So Samuel at this point is a boy. He's, he's definitely younger than 12. He's been serving in, in the, the tent. He's been serving Eli the priest. And now he's got this message he's got to deliver. And so he, he stays awake all night. And in the morning, Eli tells him, what did the Lord say? And Samuel doesn't really want to say. And, and then Eli says, tell me or it's going to happen to you. And so Samuel tells him everything the Lord had said. And, and here's Eli's response to the judgment of the Lord. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That's it. That's all he says. Eli hears that he is going to be judged, that his household is going to be judged. And, and that, that because of the sin that he has not stopped, he's going to be judged. And he goes, okay, he's the Lord. Let him do what's good. It's so wicked. And I, I've got over here, I, um, I, as I was preparing the sermon, I, the imagery that came to mind was, um, you know, the, the phrase, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Well, Eli is like rubber. Twice, twice he is judged by the Lord through, through people are given a prophetic word to deliver to him. And twice he just, meh. And, and when he's given the opportunity to respond, to repent, all he does is say, well, the Lord does what the Lord does. He'll do whatever he wants. And it's sad because the very next story is the story of the deaths of Eli and his sons. And and his sons die in battle while carrying the ark against the Philistines. The Philistines steal the ark. And then when Eli gets news from back in Shiloh, he falls over backwards and he breaks his neck and he dies. And he's very old at that point. But the text also makes sure to mention that Eli is not just old. He's heavy. The text wants you to know that Eli is fat. And the reason for this is as a priest, he should have not had the means to get fat. He should have had the offerings the Lord had provided for him. So so when his sons were doing all this evil, what we learn at the end of his life is that even though he maybe wasn't helping them steal the offerings, he sure was enjoying eating them. And so we see in Eli a picture of someone who doesn't repent at all. He's, he's a Christian who hears a message and should feel convicted and should be challenged by it and should say, there's something in my life that needs to change and goes, what are you going to do? That's it. That, that's the picture of Eli. And he, he's the first leader we're looking at. Now, after Eli, Samuel leads for a while in Israel. And Samuel is an awesome judge for the people of Israel. He's a prophet of the Lord. Under Samuel, they have a major victory over the Philistines without anyone being assembled for battle. Uh, Under Samuel, they have a time of peace. And and the people of Israel are just blessed because they follow Samuel and follow the Lord. And, And then Samuel gets old. And when Samuel gets old, his two sons they're better than Eli's sons, but they're not great. And the people of Israel say, we, we don't want your sons after you, Eli, or Samuel. We, we want a king. And there's this whole discussion that takes place where Samuel says no. And then the Lord says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. But the people demand a king. And so they get a king. And so we're going to look at the king they get next. And that king is Saul. Now, um, I have a lot to say about Saul. Um, and I'm going to try and go as fast as I can through this. Um, but, but when we first meet Saul, um, the first thing we learn about Saul is that his dad has a lot of money. The next thing we learn about Saul is that he's really handsome. And then we learn he's tall. And then the Bible makes sure to mention again that he's handsome. So, so when you get a picture of Saul, you're imagining me if I was taller. And, 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 and Saul is this amazing, I know you're all laughing at home, so I'll pause for a moment. 
But, but Saul is, is from a, a worldly perspective, from a wealthy family, handsome, good-looking, tall. He, he's what the people of Israel kind of wanted for a king, but, but shouldn't have wanted. Because when the people of Israel asked for a king, they wanted someone that they could look to to lead them and that they could put their trust in instead of the Lord. And it's sad. But I want to tell you, when Saul first speaks, the author of Samuel wants to make sure that we know that Saul's not going to be a good king. You see, the very first thing we see in Saul is his dad tells him, hey, we lost some donkeys. Can you go find them? And so Saul goes with a servant boy to look for the donkeys. And in three days, he can't find them. Um, And that, I think, is of note personally. But um, finally, Saul is looking and they can't find him. And and Saul says to his servant, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Saul is like, I think my dad's going to be more worried about me than the animals, so we should return. And it's his servant boy who says, why don't we inquire of the Lord? Saul is a guy who can't even finish the task given, but then the little servant who's with him says, I've got an idea. And Saul says, yeah, let's do that. He's not a leader even from the first moment we meet him. In fact, when Saul goes on, he meets Samuel and Samuel tells him where the donkeys are and all this stuff and anoints him with oil and says, you're going to be king. And then Samuel gathers all the Israelites together um, and, and anoints Saul to be king and, and, but, or, and promotes Saul the king in front of all the Israelites. But when Samuel goes to promote Saul, they do this thing where they, they cast lots and they, they come to each tribe of Israel and eventually Saul's tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, is chosen. And, and then they go household by household until Saul's household is so, chosen. And then eventually they get to Saul and no one can find him. Why can no one find him? Because he's hiding among the baggage. All the people of Israel are together and Saul's nervous. What are they going to think when they find out I'm king? So he hides. And, and what's funny is, is it actually says that Samuel and the people inquire of the Lord. Is there someone else? And the Lord responds, no, he's hiding among the baggage. And I, I just wonder how that prayer would have been received. Oh, that's weird. Um, and then they go find him. But when all the people see him, even though he's like a super coward hiding among the baggage, when they see him and he stands up and they see how tall and handsome he is, the people rejoice and say, long live the king. Or at least most of them do. About a year into his reign as king, Saul delivers the people of Israel from an enemy and they all promote him to king together and they're thrilled that they have King Saul. They win a battle with overwhelming odds in their favor because the Israelites assemble under Saul and push out their enemy. And, and so we're a year into the reign of Saul and then it all starts to go downhill. You see, once Saul becomes king, the, the other nations start to notice. And the Philistines, um, they've got garrisons in Israel where they have soldiers. And so Saul sends his son Jonathan and men and they push out a Philistine army or a Philistine garrison. And, and after that, the Philistines get ticked. And so they gather their whole army. And when the Philistines gather their army, they gather an army. The, the text says that, that there were thousands of chariots, thousands of horsemen. They were able to split into three companies and they had men like the sand of the seashores. They're, 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 they're not even countable. And they come before the Israelites. And, and in this story, when the Israelites saw, I, I love this, is in chapter 13. Um, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, and the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some of them even crossed over to Philistine lands to basically be like, we're on your side now. The, the, the Israelites were so terrified. And in the midst of that, you have King Saul for the first time facing an adversary that he doesn't think he can beat in battle. 
And so what happens is Saul and about six or 700 men are, are pretty far away from the front line with the Philistines, and they're trying to decide what to do. And it, it's all that Saul has left of his army because everyone else is hiding. And, and the men start to scatter. They start to say, well, this is a lost cause. It'd be better if we weren't arming ourselves against them. And, and so the men start to scatter. And, and the thing is, is that Saul's been waiting because Samuel told him seven days ago, he said, seven days from now, I'm going to show up and we're going to offer sacrifices to the Lord, put our faith in the Lord, and he's going to deliver us. And, and Saul's been waiting for that. But then he sees the men start to scatter. And when the men start to scatter, Saul decides, hey, quick, someone, go get, go get a stone. Let's start offering the sacrifices to the Lord. And, and at first, um, I, I, if you've heard this taught, I've heard this taught before that Saul offers unlawful sacrifices. In fact, if you've got certain Bibles, the heading says Saul offers unlawful sacrifices. But when you study the passage out, what becomes clear, um, there's other people besides priests who offer sacrifices in the Old Testament, and it's not wrong when they do it, depending on their motive. What becomes clear is that the reason Saul offered these sacrifices was not because he was inquiring of the Lord and crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, help us. He was saying, look, men, I'm offering sacrifices. Don't leave. It'd be like if we had a bunch of people in the church and we were all gathered together and and everyone started to leave. And I was like, I want everyone to stick around. Hey, everybody, before you go, I got to pray for a while. And I just dragged a prayer out. That's kind of what's happening here. Saul is not worried about the Lord. He's worried about his army getting smaller. And that is so wicked. And, And when Samuel shows up, right after Saul finishes making the sacrifices, the very first thing Samuel says is, what have you done? And Saul says right away, the first thing Saul says is, when I saw the men were scattering, I realized I hadn't inquired of the Lord. His motive wasn't inquiring of the Lord. His motive was, if the men see I'm offering a sacrifice, maybe they'll stay. He doesn't have faith that the Lord will deliver. He thinks he needs those men around him in order to win the battle. Ironically, his son Jonathan is going to single-handedly win this battle. But, but Samuel says to him, after he tells him, and, and what's funny, Saul says to Samuel, look, they were scattering, so I forced myself to do the sacrifices. He makes it sound like it was hard for him to do. Saul is trying to make the people think he looks good, and he's trying to make Samuel think, oh yeah, Saul's good, Saul's good. And what Samuel says to him is, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God which, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul is two years into his reign, and the Lord has already moved on to David. We don't know David yet, but we're going to find out. And and what's sad here is the very next thing that happens is the Lord delivers the people of Israel with just Saul's son, Jonathan, who is amazing and who it's sad he never got to be king. And, and the story doesn't end here for Saul with judgment because the, the very next story, the, the next major narrative in Samuel, um, Samuel comes back to Saul and says, hey, Saul, the Amalekites, the Lord promised that we would devote them to destruction once we were established in Israel. And Samuel tells Saul, listen to the voice of the Lord, Saul. Go devote the Amalekite people from the oldest to the youngest to destruction. Destroy all the, the animals, destroy all of it. Destroy it, devote it to the Lord. All of it. And, and Samuel's big point, listen to the voice of the Lord. The Lord is saying to do this. Listen to him, Saul. And so Saul takes the people and they go and they have a major victory over the Amalekites. And at first you kind of think, okay, 
But then you read that they forgot to kill the king of the Amalekites. His name was Agag. And then you find out that they also kept all the oxen and all the sheep and all the fattened calves. They kept all the good animals. They didn't destroy those either. And so Samuel, when, when he shows up to, to be with them, the first thing he sees is Saul has also built a monument to himself, which is never a good sign. If you're building monuments to yourself, you're doing something wrong in the Bible. But when Samuel shows up to talk to Saul, the very first thing Samuel says, remember, he said, listen to the voice of the Lord. Now when he appears before Saul, he says, why do I hear the voice of sheep? Why do I hear the voice of oxen? He, he says, why am I hearing these things? They should be dead. And Saul's response is, I listened to the voice of the Lord. See, I, I spared the king of Agag and I spared the best of the animals to sacrifice to the Lord. Look at how holy I am. The Lord wanted me to wipe all this out, but I'm going to sacrifice it to him. Look at me. And Samuel says, did you? And Saul says, I did. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalekak, uh, Am Am Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the, the people, not Saul, the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So basically he says, hey, Samuel, the Lord, your God, we're doing this for you. And it's so sad. And then Samuel delivers a major judgment against Saul. And he says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and the presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the, Lord of, uh, the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel says, you're, you're talking about sacrificing, but, but the fact that you have things to sacrifice, it's because you sinned. And so these sacrifices are to cover up sin that you just didn't need to have in the first place, Saul. Because you've rejected obedience to the Lord, to following his voice, because you've rejected that, the Lord has rejected you. And here's Saul's response. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Okay, so on the surface, there's some good things in this. Um, Saul says, I've sinned. I didn't obey. I followed the voice of the people. But, but when you get to the end of what Saul said, he says, please pardon my sin, Samuel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. There, there's so much going on here, but I can sum it up in this. Um, Saul is saying, you're right, I sinned, my bad, Samuel. Will you come back with me when I go to the people so they don't know anything's wrong? That's what he's saying. He's trying to say, yeah, I did wrong. But, but I'm good with the people because they wanted to keep the spoil. So I, I'm good there. What, can we be good? He's just saying over and over, are we good? And, and, and it's so sad because when he says, can you return with me so I can bow down before the Lord? What he's saying there is, I want the people to know I'm right with God and I need you with me to do that. He fears man so much more than God. What, what he fears, so we got the rubber and then we got the glue. Saul is the glue where what Saul fears most is what sticks to him. And so what Saul wants people to see stuck to him is, okay, maybe things weren't great there, but oh, Samuel and Saul are okay. They're good. They're good. And because of this, this is the pattern of Saul's whole life. 
Over and over and over, we're going to see Saul sin. And over and over and over, Saul doesn't care about what the Lord thinks. He just cares that people think rightly of him. He's building himself up. He wants to be mighty in his own eyes. He does not care about the Lord. Saul is the Christian who comes to a service or listens to something or is in small group and he feels deeply convicted. And then afterwards, in front of everyone, he says, man, that cut me. That was deep. And then when he's not around people, he just keeps doing things the same way. He cares about his image in front of others and that's it. You could almost say he's better than Eli because he doesn't just ignore it and just say, yeah, whatever. But I don't think he's better at all. I think they're both just different levels of bad. And, and, and so all that Saul cares about in this story is how are people going to perceive me? He doesn't really care about the Lord. He cares about the people who he thinks give him power. He doesn't realize that the Lord is sovereign over all and that if his faith was in the Lord, all this other stuff would work itself out. And so now we turn to David. And I got to tell you, um, I love talking about David right up until the thing we have to talk about today. Um, in, the, in the first, like, 25 chapters we meet, we meet him in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. And up until um, chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, David is awesome. Um, David follows after the Lord well. He's not perfect. He does some things wrong. But even in what he does wrong, he's always ready and willing to turn to the Lord. And, and his desire is to have a right relationship with the Lord. We see that over and over and over. In fact, when David first, um, when we first meet him, he's a good shepherd, and then he gets anointed by Samuel, and then he winds up serving Saul. And, and, then, and then from there, we go into the story that is called David and Goliath, but should be called David and the living God. Because David at no point in the story ever fears Goliath. And the proof of that is in the very first thing David says. The very first words of David in the Bible. And remember, the first words of people matter in the Old Testament. Um, David says, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? This is after he's seen Goliath for the first time. He says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is a shepherd boy. He shows up to a battle line to deliver food on behalf of his father. He sees this tall, strong Philistine out there challenging Israel. And he says, are one of you going to do that or should I? Because the living God is not going to be thwarted. And, and for the first 20 or so chapters of David's life, we see over and over again how he puts his faith in the Lord. When, when Saul tries to kill David, David does not kill Saul in return. David flees because David doesn't want to start his kingdom with bloodshed. He doesn't want to kill the Lord's anointed. He follows after the Lord well. Even after Saul dies, David doesn't rejoice that Saul's dead. He mourns that Saul didn't repent, that Saul lived a life of a fearing man over the Lord. And, and David eventually becomes king. And it's this beautiful picture when he becomes king. And the, and the Lord, once he becomes king, David establishes Jerusalem and, and he builds a palace there. And he says, I want to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord tells him no, but the Lord, the Lord says, someone else will do that. The temple will be built by your son. But then the Lord promises David that from his line will come what ultimately is Jesus, a king who will reign forever. And everything's going great right up until 2 Samuel 11. Because you see, when David gets real comfortable, um, there, there's a, a season, a spring, and in the spring, the kings would go to war. And there's a season where David decides, I don't need to do that anymore. And so he sends Joab, the commander of his army, out with Israel to go to battle. And while they go to battle, David just kind of loiters around his house. He's not doing his job. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And, and he just kind of hangs out. And there, there's one late afternoon where David gets on the roof of his palace, and he's looking out over his city, 
and he, he sees this woman named Bathsheba, and she's hot. Uh, and, and he sees her. That's all he knows about her. She looks beautiful. She's good to look at. In fact, the text says that David saw her. He desired her. He found out whose wife she was, and then he took her. And that saw, desired, took is exactly what Eve and Adam did in the garden. It's what Achan did when they entered the promised land the first time, when he sinned, when they won the battle of Jericho. It's, he's doing that same pattern of sin. I saw something, I took it because I desired it. And so David finds out that Bathsheba is actually the wife of one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, who's a big deal. David would have known him well. And David says, I want her. And so he took her and he slept with her and then he found out she was pregnant. So not good. Um, Uriah is off at war because he's where David should have been in the first place. So David comes up with a plan and he calls for Uriah to come back and give him a report. And his hope is that Uriah will spend some time with his wife, who's a couple months pregnant now. And, and Uriah doesn't do that because the, the first night Uriah is back, he, he sleeps where the king's servants sleep. And when David says, why didn't you go spend time with your wife? He says, no, no, no. While the ark and while the army are out at battle, far be it from me to, to have that comfort. I, that's not my place. He's basically saying what David should have said from the beginning. And so David goes, all right, stay one more day. And that night David gets him drunk thinking maybe this will work. But Uriah doesn't do it again. Or Uriah sleeps with the king's servants again. He doesn't go to his wife. And so the next day, David drafts up a letter. And the letter he drafts up tells Joab, the commander of his army, hey, we, we got to make sure Uriah dies. So you got to put him on the front lines and you've got to overextend our army so they have to retreat. And you got to make sure where the fighting's fiercest, Uriah's right there. So when you retreat, Uriah's one of the men killed. And note I say one of the men, because in a battle, extending your, overextending your army like that, David gets other men killed to cover up his sin. And so Uriah delivers that letter back to Joab and then ultimately is killed because of it. And then Bathsheba mourns when she finds out. And then after her time of mourning is over, she comes and becomes one of David's wives. Note, wives, not only wife. David had other wives at the time, and that is so important in this because David wanted something more than what he had. And even if, it wouldn't, even if he didn't have other wives, this wouldn't be good, but it, it's, it's just, this isn't some beautiful love story for the ages. Of, it's nothing like that. It's David's wickedness and, and his actions greatly displeased the Lord. And so David faced judgment. And Nathan, the prophet, the same prophet who delivered the message from the Lord that someone from David's line would reign forever, the Messiah, the, the same prophet who delivered that now comes back and says this to David. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of the poor man's morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. When, when David heard this, his anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, and I like to imagine, he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hands of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this, all of this that I gave you was too little, I would add to you as much more if you would ask me for it. If David asked the Lord, I need more wives. Uh, And the point of that is not David asking for more wives. The point is, The Lord is saying, if you were not content with all that I had given you, I would have offered you more, David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've done the same thing Eli did. You've done the same thing Saul did. Why have you done this? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He goes on to say, the sword will never depart from your house. And, and, and David's sons will wind up, because of this judgment comes to pass, in that his sons, some of his sons kill a lot of his other sons. The, one of his sons forces him out of Jerusalem at one point, and he goes into hiding and has to fight against his own son in a civil war. David's life, because of this, there, there are so many consequences for this sin. And, and, and he's even told, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That's Absalom. And, and I will take your wives before your, your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For what you did secretly, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. This is a major judgment because of how wicked David's actions were. And, and what separates David from Eli and Saul? What separates him is his response. When David heard all this, David responded, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. I've sinned against the Lord. And and that's what the response of Eli and Saul should have been. I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. And and Nathan says to David out of that, the Lord has put away your sin. I, I am of the position that if Eli, when the Lord delivered that judgment to him, if Eli repented and said, I've sinned against the Lord and turned against what he had done, I'm of the opinion that maybe there'd be a different ending to Eli, or at least we'd remember Eli differently. And Saul, even though his kingdom would have ended because of what the Lord had said, Saul could have ended his life in a much better way. Saul ends his life after spending a night talking to a witch and trying to raise Samuel up as a ghost. A- after that, Saul's last day is spent begging his shield bearer to kill him and his shield bearer says no. Saul's life is terrible at the end and it's because he never repented. He never turned to the Lord. David, when he sins, and he sins in a huge way, adultery, murder, lying, he puts the whole nation at risk in battle and tries to cover it all up. And, And he makes other men complicit in his sin with Joab. And at the end of all that, David recognizes, I have sinned against the Lord. And because of that, his sin is taken away because he has a right understanding. His repentance begins there. If Eli is the person who listens to a sermon and doesn't even feel conviction, even though they claim to be a Christian, and if Saul is the one who tries to say all the right things in other people, when he's around other people, but then does nothing to change how he acts, David is the one we see in the next story. Nathan says, the Lord's forgiven your sin, but your son's going to die because of this. The, the son who's, about to, or who's born from Bathsheba. And when the son's born and has health problems, David cries out to the Lord. Because David knows his son is experiencing this because of what David did. And David cries out to the Lord, even though he knows nothing's going to change, because he ultimately knows that the Lord is in control. And so when David says, I have sinned, he's saying, Lord, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against the Lord. 
And, and that's what we're called to do. And, and doing that, there's, there's, you may be out there sitting there thinking, well, how do we know if we do this? Because I know when I sin. And um, the, the thing is, is there's a really simple uh, a, a check for this, I think. I, if you think about, if you watched our sermon last week, or if you watched a different sermon last week, if you watched a sermon last week and you felt no conviction when someone opened up and preached from the word of God, you're Eli. If they're preaching from the word of God and your response at the end was, all right, I hope the Lord does something with that. You're Eli. You're, you're, it's worthless. It's, it just, it is. That's, that's what it is. If, if, if last week at the end of that sermon, we're talking about the great commission. If you went out and said, man, that was a good message. I need to respond to that. And you told people about that. And you said in your small group, yeah, I need to respond to that. But, but outside of that, those words, nothing about it changed. You're a Saul. And that's not any better than Eli. If the only thing you're doing is trying to present yourself well in front of others, it's not worth it. But David, David, when he's confronted with that sin, he, he's cut with it. And he, yes, he did it. And he has to own it, but also David owns it. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He recognizes that the fault is there. And, and the Christian who does that, what changes is, is when they're convicted, there's prayer and there's fasting and there's turning to the Lord and they're saying, Lord, what would you have me do different? And, and I, we're, we're going to close in a moment. And to close, I'm actually going to read when, when Nathan delivered this message to David, David wrote a Psalm, Psalm 51. And, and if you want to see repentance from hiding the sin he's committed, let me tell you, repentance is writing a psalm that gets recorded in the Bible, the best-selling book of all time. And although it wasn't the best-selling book back then, probably, because they didn't sell books, they didn't have a printing press. But the, the point here is that David proclaims his sin, not, because, not to proclaim his sin, but you'll see it in here. David says, because of my transgressions, I will let others know of the way the Lord has forgiven me. So they will not fall into the same sin I've fallen in. And so they will know that the response to sin is that I have sinned against the Lord. If, if we follow the Lord well, if we believe and, and, and live our lives for the Lord, if we have a heart after the Lord, then we're not going to respond with indifference. We're not going to respond by trying to make ourselves look better. We're going to respond by turning to the Lord and turning to him over and over and praying to him and crying out to him. Our, our patterns of living are not going to remain the same because we're going to look to the Lord, recognizing that it is against him and him alone our sins, are, our sins matter. Yes, we sin against other people, but when we sin against other people, ultimately it's sin against the Lord. So I'm going to read Psalm 51 to close, and then I'll pray. Um, but, but these are the words of David. After, and it says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my, my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that I have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O Lord, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Dear Lord, Lord, we thank you for the picture we see in David, who when he was caught up in sin, when, when that sin came in front of him, and, and he knew it was sin before that, but, but when confronted by the sin, and, and when realizing the depths of his sin, his response was to say, I have sinned against you, God. I've sinned against the Lord. And we see in his prayer that, that on the other side of it, in his psalm, he, he says, Lord, Lord, restore me. He recognizes that only you can restore us and, and it's only by your measure that we should be judged. And, and, and he, he, he cries out and says, let, let me do this so that, so that I can tell others about the way you've restored me. His, his desire is that others would not fall into the same pattern that he fell into. His, his desire is for a people, himself included, to live more holy on the other side of this sin. And Lord, I, I pray for each and every person here. I, I pray for the people that um, just are callous and, and messages just bounce off them, like Eli. They, that for, for people that, that claim that they follow you, but when the Holy Spirit tries to convict them, they just stay put. I, I pray, Lord, that, that you would convict them deeply that, that it's not good to live this way and to help them turn and be like David. I pray that they would cry out to you, in their sin and in their indifference and their callousness and that they would turn to you. I I pray for those of us that are like Saul. And Lord, I confess that Saul, when I read his story, I get angry at him and then I get angry at myself because I desire so much for people to think well of me. I, I desire so much for people to think I'm holy and I'm righteous before you. And sometimes that desire for how other people's or how other people think of me Uh, overrides the desire to follow you well. And so, Lord, forgive me for that. And I I pray that anyone who is in that same boat where we say the right things and we do the right things around others, but then when we're home, when we're alone, we we don't live that out. I I pray, Lord, that you would help me to not be a hypocrite, but help me to live like David. I pray I would have a heart after you. I pray all of us would have a heart where we confess our sins before you and we turn to you and we turn away from that sin. I pray that we would be like David and ultimately I pray we'd be like Jesus because if David was a man after your own heart with his sin, Jesus was a perfect man. And so I pray we would live like him and when we do sin that we would look to examples like David to help us get back on the right track. Lord, where we have sinned, let us recognize that that sin is before you. Let us turn to you and let us follow after you. And Lord, we pray that you would restore us and keep us in your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us. I hope you live like David.